Hey, it's Sarah, and you don't want to miss this week's episode of Laughter Permitted with Julie Foudy. Her guest this week is the one and only Abby Wambach, one of the greatest soccer players of all time and a New York Times bestselling author twice over and a co-owner of My Rivals, Angel City FC in the NWSL, who play My Red Stars starting next year. You can find Laughter Permitted with Julie Foudy wherever you get your podcasts. Abby's the best. I can't wait to listen to that one. That's what she said. The brackets are out, and I love taking on my friends and family in the ESPN Tournament Challenge and beating all of them. Sign up now for ESPN Tournament Challenge at ESPN.com slash bracket. And this year, you can boost your bracket with ESPN+. Plus. You can use Bracket Predictor to analyze every matchup, get recommended picks one game at a time, and import your picks directly into ESPN's Tournament Challenge. Go sign up now at ESPNplus.com. Welcome to That's What She Said with Sarah Spain, a podcast about, well, whatever the hell I want. Actors and musicians, athletes, comedians, neuroscientists, wine experts. If I find somebody interesting, I'm bringing them to you. We'll talk about how they became who they are, how they found success, battled failures, and how they ended up here talking to me. I'm Kristen Kish, and my dilemma is what's for dinner? So, you know, at first hearing of this, it sounds ironic, right? Like a chef wouldn't know what's for dinner, but it makes total sense because of paralysis of choice, also sometimes referred to as paradox of choice, which is people have a difficult time making a decision when they're faced with too many options. It's something that uh, those who listened way back when to Kevin Brilliant, uh, who is in in the marketing and uh, behind the scenes of the Bulls based on his work in human psychology, knows that if you put up a hundred hats, people are less likely to buy any because they have too many options. But if you put up 10, they will find one that they feel very good about buying and they will feel good about their choice and follow through with it. So you have just too many options. You know how to make everything and you know how to make it well. So every night, everything is on the table, quite literally. Um, I basically make some combination of vegetables and a grain almost every night because that is all I know how to make. And it's usually either Asian flavored or Mexican Southwestern flavored because that's what I like. Very simple for me. Uh, What you need to do is assign some parameters, fake as though they may be, in advance that will help guide your decision making. So Mondays are always fish. Tuesdays are always plant-based. Wednesday is takeout. Thursday is something with a grill, right? Like It may be hard to actually follow through on because you know that those parameters are artificial, but give it a shot. Maybe that will help narrow it down. Um, although, as we talked about, like if you can make a delicious tortilla chip topped with some meat and cheese, then you know, you're always going to be fine. You're going to be fine. That's what she said. Hey, everybody. Uh, Man, I feel extra refreshed for this episode because I just took a vacation and it was life changing. It was only a week. I just went to Arizona and hung out by a pool and did some hiking, uh, hung out with some friends. We all uh, tested in advance so that we could hang out safely um, in a house that we rented, just a couple of us. And um, man, I, I can't recommend it enough. I know that sounds silly because vacations, I don't think they need better publicity. Uh, But if you have been putting off getting away and you don't have to fly if you don't feel comfortable, you don't have to go far away. But um, I think more than ever with our homes becoming our offices, um, I I required removing myself from this space. I had had a couple days off around Christmas, New Year's, and I still ended up working the whole time. I didn't feel refreshed at all. So actually removing myself from my office slash home and going somewhere else and shutting my brain off for a week, um, I literally feel like a new person. Um, I cannot 
express enough. I think I talked in a recent podcast about trying to balance what we're feeling now after a year of this and listening to our hearts and our guts, but also remembering that we are in incredibly strange times. So if your brain is telling you to quit your job and move to Alaska or something, maybe, maybe do that. Or Maybe think that, you know, let let me sit this a little longer and figure out if what I'm feeling and thinking about my life and my choices is based on this extremely strange year. And I will tell you that a lot of the things that were really bringing me down and stressing me out about my life and work and everything else, um, they just feel so much lighter having taken a week off where I didn't spend every second focused solely on work um, and, and being in this office home. So... Um, I can't recommend it enough. Also, a note for you baseball fans. I went to two baseball games and um, they sell tickets in little pods where you have to buy in two or four or whatever. And I wasn't sure how it would feel, but they zip tied all the seats that were not sold. Meaning if somebody wanted to come sit with you, a friend that wasn't in the pod that you bought with, they couldn't sit with you because the seat right next to you and on the other side of you was zip tied shut. Um, This made me feel so much safer about whether people were staying where they were supposed to. Everyone wore masks around concessions, bathrooms everywhere. Um, It felt really safe. And so knowing that in my city, the Cubs and White Sox are offering 20% capacity and that they're going to probably follow similar procedures um, as they did at spring training. I feel good about trying to get back in a safe way to stuff like going to a baseball game outside spread out. Um, so if you're thinking about going, I could tell you only from my personal experience and everyone's different that it felt great. Um, all right, on to the interview. You guys are going to love this one. I had such a blast and I love when I see someone on TV and their Instagram and everything, and I think I'm going to like them. And then I do. And in fact, I liked her even more than I thought I would. We just hit it off. Kristen Kish She's the winner of Top Chef season 10, host of a couple TV shows right now. The show is Fast Foodies on True TV with two other chefs. It's really fun. It's not like your normal cooking show. It's a blast. And then she is the um, operator and head chef at Arlo Gray restaurant in Austin, Texas that she opened a couple years ago. Um, We just had a blast. We talked about all sorts of things from working her way up in the restaurant industry to coming out publicly um, to what Top Chef did for her and how it also affected her in ways that were unexpected. Um, just just a really cool conversation. Talked a little bit about the pandemic as well and being a restaurant owner. Um, but yeah, like I think the under the underscore here is I've never laughed as much during a Spanish Inquisition or maybe an interview in general. We just had a blast. And you could tell it was going to be like that. We hit it off right from the start because before we even started the interview, um, we were talking about exclamation points. And uh, my producer, Dan, decided to chime in with an undesired opinion on needing to eradicate them from our lives. And here's here's how that went for him. And Sarah, Kristen just brought up the exclamation point thing. We got to do away with it. We got to figure it out. No, like, you know in what, the Dan? emails, like Dan, I'm sick and tired guess of what? Like, matching. Guess what, white man? You're saying that because everyone <laughs> doesn't assume that you're a bitch when you write an email. So as women, we have to use lots of exclamation yeah. points. Oh, everyone okay. thinks we're super All excited right. and nice. But then <laughs> if we use too many, we're ditzy. That's right. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> Man, I'm sorry. There's a limit per paragraph. I'm very aware. I am very aware of how many exclamation points I use. I am a big proponent. Sometimes I use five in a row. Sometimes I'll even alternate exclamation and question marks when I'm really dumbfounded by how great something is. Um, I will never apologize for my exclamation marks. Uh, I punctuate like I live. I go go big or go home. So that's that's not happening, Dan. So yeah, you're going to like this. We had a lot of fun. Here's Kristen Kish. That's what she said. 
So as you guys have been able to tell all month, I've been inviting badass, amazing women on to talk about their experiences and successes. And this is a bit of a change up. I have not had, I don't think, I think I've had one kitchen chef related, food related person. And I am obsessed with Top Chef. I love cooking at home. I love reading menus of restaurants days before I go in anticipation. So it's surprising that I haven't dived into this as, as much as I would like. So I'm super excited to have you on, Kristen, especially now because there's so much going on in, in the food and restaurant world post and during pandemic and all of that. So let's start way back when, though. You were born in Seoul, South Korea, and adopted by a family in Michigan at about four months old. So what do you actually remember about learning about where you came from and how you might be uh, different in terms of your early years to others? You know, I as long as I can remember, adopted was always part of my narrative. Like, and it, and it held, it didn't hold a positive connotation or a negative. It was just, it is what it is. It was like, hi, my name's Kristen. I'm also adopted. As if you couldn't tell by me being an Asian child with Caucasian parents. Um, but that's the most obvious. Um, you know, it's oh, it was always something that was part of my my story and that I never shied away from. Um, I talked about it, but not in a way that pointed me out as different. I talked about it as if it was part of me. Uh, and my mom would always read me, you know, Korean Cinderella, which is part of the restrooms in Arlo Gray, part of that story. Um, we would go to kimchi festivals. She would take me to, you know, meet foreign exchange students, put me in like the traditional dress. I don't even know what it's called. That's how Korean I am. Um, <laughs> but it was always, I always knew. I knew for a long time. It wasn't until much, much later that I recognized the weight that it had on me and all of the kind of little details about who I was and what it meant to be adopted. That's wonderful, though, that she really wanted you to connect in whatever way you then wanted to pursue or not. Um, I feel like a lot of white people would be well served by um, having to engage in other cultures and understand right. them and take an interest. And, uh, but that's a story for another time. Uh, what did your, what did your parents do for work? Uh, so my mom, uh, she, for a long, long time is a now retired school teacher. She taught child psychology, early childhood development. Um, my dad is a packaging engineer. I feel like that's like the most Michigan Midwestern thing you could be. Totally. I don't know. Maybe it's just me. Um, and so I, my mom was really the one who ever since she was a young girl herself knew she wanted to adopt. She knew she wanted to be a mother. They had my brother, um, biological to them, uh, eight years prior. Mm -hmm. And she just knew she wanted to adopt. She knew she wanted to, to, to do that for the world. That's great. What were you into as a kid? Sports, music, food? All of the above. So interestingly, food in a, in a weird connection kind of way, more like I would watch it on TV. It was the thing that I loved. I grew up in a family in Michigan, and that meant um, Big Ten sports. That meant college football, college basketball, Michigan State, season ticket holders. Like, I would go and watch the marching band. I would go to the tailgate. Like, we would go and, um, you know, watch the Detroit Pistons and Chicago Bulls. It was just part of, it was part of everything. I wanted every starter jacket known to, known to <laughs> humankind. Um, I wanted the Jordans. I wanted the tearaway pants. Um, I played sports. I did basketball camp. I did softball. Um, up until probably I was 15, 16. And then I kind of just lost interest. And I think that's when it started becoming, you either were going the professional route and you were going to pursue this as something bigger. Um, or you just fell off because it was no longer fun like that. Yeah. anymore. 
I like the, I'm from obviously um, not the same, but Chicago suburbs. So the Midwestern, you're just in it. You're like, oh, like yeah. if, if, and my parents aren't even into sports and it was still so obvious around me at all times that yeah. I, I became obsessed myself. My um, elementary school song was to the tune of Michigan State's fight song. <laughs> that's great. <laughs> that, yeah, that's, and, and you got to choose early up there, whether you're Michigan yeah. State or UM, for sure. Oh, Chicago is yeah. like just a melting pot of everybody else's colleges. There's literally a bar <laughs> in Chicago for like Iowa, Michigan, Purdue, Illinois, yes. Indiana. So like you never really had to choose. It was, yes. you were cool just being neutral. Um, so you talked about watching a lot of cooking growing up. And I read an, an interview with you where you talked about it. it's, it's Mario Batali, it's Emeril Lagasse. It's all these sort of dominant men. Mm -hmm. um, so was there a part of you that already had this inkling of like, I want to do this for a living? Or was it just, I like looking at this? I like looking at it. Um, I watched primarily The Great Chefs of the World. It was on Discovery Channel. And they did, I saw a lot of female chefs. Um, and it was a woman with, I don't know where she's from, but slightly interesting accent, dubbing over all the international languages that I didn't understand. So there's always this calming effect. And I think it was like my, I think it was the earliest sign of like ASMR in the world. Yeah. <laughs> we are just like listening to the cooking sounds and you're watching the hands move and everything is just calm. And it was like one camera, one chef, and then that's it. And so for me, that's when I started to learn how to cook. Um, I didn't, I haven't started developing flavors till years, years, years later. Um, but when I liked the, I like the motion. I like seeing things being created with your hands. Yeah, I found that people from the country of interesting do tend to have a calming accent. Uh, yes, <laughs> so my I my like that's very diplomatic. You're like <laughs> yeah. she got an interesting accent. I don't know where the <laughs> hell she was from. <laughs> it was it was something that did not sound like yeah. mine. Um, I listen to my fiance all the time. She has a, she's from Australia. And so oh, she, I'm just like, yes. how cool, how cool is it? And I'm like, I'm here with like a half Midwestern accent. It's the worst. I, so I love my husband so much, but he's from Wisconsin. So the only mm -hmm. accent is an occasionally annoying vowel. And all my friends from Cornell, one married New Zealand, Australia, Italy, <laughs> all the husbands are coming in with this beautiful, like flowery. And then Brad, but I love Brad. Brad. <laughs> I love Brad. <laughs> um, he has many other wonderful qualities. Um, yeah, sure. And I don't have an interesting accent, so sucks for him, too. I'm sure he'd be happier <laughs> if I sounded cool, too. Um, so you actually ended up in Chicago at Le Cordon Bleu. And it's so funny because, of course, I've heard of Le Cordon Bleu, but you hear of it and think of, like, France. I lived in the building that overlooked Le Cordon Bleu in Chicago. That was my previous residence before the house that we just bought a couple years ago. And I would look down and be like, I wonder if that's like a ripoff or is that like a real like version of it? Because it just isn't very stately looking, that building. Yeah, yeah. And then I found out like as we were about to move that you could go there for like test meals. And if I had known people like you were there, like I would have been walking over there every day. Like, let me check this out. And instead, I missed my opportunity. Well, you didn't know what you were was making back I think then, it got though. like raised and now it's a condominium. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, uh, I it it wasn't a very long standing institution there, but West I'm sure as it was West Chestnut, right? Yeah, West Chestnut. Mm -hmm. Yes. So when you would look, you'd see like all the kids in their checkered pants and like these stupid little hats and this cravat because that's what you're supposed to wear. Meanwhile, it's pointless. But yeah, um, 
No, the yeah, crab helps. It was good for your flavor profiles and like your. So palate. I was like, are we supposed to like wipe our mouths with? It? Like, I don't understand what we're doing here, but whatever. <laughs> but it was it was a good school. I was there for two years. I'd gone into culinary school already with like all my prerequisites of math, science, all that stuff, um, at a normal university. Um, Where was that? At Grand Valley State University in Michigan. Um, I was awful. I hated every ounce of it. So that's why I went to culinary school. Uh, and I will say it was, I needed to do that because I needed structure. Um, do I think that culinary schools need to exist as much as they do now? Probably not, unless they give kids a little bit of a break and not have to like put themselves into a hundred years of debt. Yeah. Yeah. Were your classes predominantly male, female, both? You know what culinary school, you, you're, you surprisingly see a lot of women, um, and well, or not surprisingly. So it's what happens after culinary school that things start to shift yeah. where the men start to rise up and the women just go and have a catering company or they wanted to go to cooking school. I'm like, that's not, that's not the case. I don't know what happens <laughs> right. when you get out of culinary well, we, school, but it's different. We know what happens. We'll get into that. By the way, did you see the, um, what country was it? Some foreign Burger King tried to announce like a scholarship and they, their headline was just women belong in the kitchen. <laughs> I'm like, how? How is it not run by anyone first? <laughs> but see, here's the thing. The, that, that, that phrase, that sentence or whatever it is, starts off a lot of articles that I've even been a part of. The New York Times did an article yeah. on myself and my former mentor, and it's a woman's place, Poland. Yeah is in a kitchen or something yeah. like that. And it's supposed but, to yeah. be sort of tug. Yeah. I got where they were going with it. You they just, didn't see it. They didn't see it all the way context through. for social media. People are not <laughs> going to give you more than one line. They're not going to read the article. They're not going to look at, they're just going to go off that. Um, so you leave Le Cordon Bleu. And like when you're there, what's your, at the time, see if you can bring yourself back to that moment. Mm -hmm. What was the ultimate goal? To own my own restaurant. Not because I wanted to like in my soul. It's because that's what <laughs> I thought I was supposed to do. Right. That's and what I'm like, right. that's, this is the trajectory. This is what I'm supposed to do. This is what's going to set my path. I'm going to marry a man. I'm going to have loads of children. I'm going to own a restaurant. I'm going to be a super mom. I'm going to do all this shit. And meanwhile, it's like, it feels like a ton of bricks on my shoulders the whole time I'm going through it, which is why I got myself into a little bit of trouble. One for six though. So I look forward to right. meeting the man of your dreams. <laughs> that should be great. Um, don't give up hope. Um, <laughs> let's talk about the trouble because you've mentioned that, um, yeah. uh, drug use, alcohol, trying to figure out your sexuality. Um, yeah. now you could probably, and this is a total generalization. You could separate someone who needs to try to figure out sexuality in a, in a time period where it wasn't completely obvious or clear how to do that and, and whether you'd be well received if you did. So I already feel like even like now versus two decades ago is, is a very different space for, for young people, LGBTQ plus, but then also for whatever reason, it feels like there's a, a, a similar conversation around chefs and mental health and drug and alcohol use. And I'm trying to figure out if that's just because when you hear it, you remember it, or if it's actually predominant. Is it the lifestyle and the hours and the stress and the perfection? Or is it that people who are into that are drawn to being chefs because they need the structure of it? Right. And they're passionate, but they're not good with regular, like they don't want to go to a regular job and sit around at a desk. I think it's 
I, I believe that it has something to do with the industry turning someone into that or magnifying the right. little seed that maybe would have never come out before. Because what ends up happening, not only is it the pressure and the stress or whatever, like if you're just the cook and you're, you have no pressure except to perform eight hours a day and cook the food, you know, but you still carry that same, I think it's the long hours. I think it's late night. I think the only thing to do when you get off work at 1 a.m. is to drink. And then with alcohol comes you know, other things. So for me, it was less about, it started before I actually really dove heavily into kitchens. Um, it was because I was trying to manage an expectation, not only on myself, but what the world perceived me to be or what I needed to be. And so I couldn't deal with that. And college meant going out and drinking and being social. I have social anxiety, large groups of people that I don't have control over freak me out. And so the only way I could sustain a normal college life with my friends was to do drugs because I couldn't drink a lot of alcohol. But then you add cocaine on top of that and you can do all of it for like 50 <laughs> hours and just be just fine, you know? So I, I realized after it was probably, uh, it was close to when my lease was coming up in Chicago and my parents were footing the bill for everything. And I woke up and, or lack of, I did not really wake up. I kind of opened my right eye and I was laying on the floor with the sun coming up. And I've just now realized that I can handle a sunset and not be negatively triggered by it anymore. So wow. the sun would come up and it was just, I was like, what the f am I doing? It was awful. It was so bad. So, you know, I had to pull myself out of it and the perfectionism and what the world saw me as the thing that was the thing that pushed me into that world, but it was also the thing that pulled me out. Cause I was yeah. like, well, how dare you be a disappointment and be a mess up basically. Yeah. It's, it's interesting how many stories you hear of chefs who like both it's exacerbated, but then it helps them through it too. Mm -hmm. Once they figure out how to manage it in a way that, that, you know, speaks to the things that they care about and why they got into it. Mm -hmm. So, um, you became an instructor at a culinary demonstration kitchen in Boston. Then you got promoted um, by the owner uh, to mm -hmm. chef de cuisine. And she was also Michelin star restaurant owner. And you became the chef de cuisine there. Um, that feels like a fairly quick ascension there. Um, did it feel like that to you? You know, yes and no. So prior to finding Barbara Lynch, I would I was working for Guy Martin, Michelin star chef from Paris, da, 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 blah. And that was the style of cooking that I leaned into. Now, without sounding arrogant, um, this that style of cooking came very naturally to me. I felt like I could do it with my eyes shut and I could just, this is the way I moved in a kitchen. Which um, is like incredible precision. Every right. tiny little detail matters. Yes. Yeah. It's it's control. <laughs> so in this part of my life, it, work out, it worked out fantastic. Mm -hmm. So... I, I felt like it was quick, but I I don't think it was undeserved. There were other things in my life that were certainly undeserved. I don't think this was. Um, but what ended up happening was the TV mixed with that promotion created a world around me of a lot of male egos not supporting me anymore, which ultimately was the reason why I left. Because for them, it suddenly became she's getting things that I don't have. So she must not deserve them and or I deserve them more. So now I take right. it out on her. Yes. A hundred percent. And, and Barbara being that. like, <laughs> Barbara's like my rock, right? But like, she's one woman also against a bunch of right. 
at, at that time, a lot of male egos that were very, very unhealthy around us. And I read that you had predominantly worked with male leadership and people in charge before her. So it was a very eye-opening experience to have a woman in charge. Um, mm-hmm. And and so thankfully, you do have her to lean on. But I will we'll get back to Top Chef because I want to. But you just mentioned it. So I want to talk about it. I read in an article you said when you returned to Boston after winning Top Chef, you said, a particular male chef in the city I was living started running his mouth that I slept with him to further my career. I never worked for him a day in my life, and I'm also very gay. It's a way <laughs> of making women feel less than. It's just so disappointing. Can't someone be happy instead of taking the thunder? That was the first hit of major reality. So take me back to that because I got red in the face reading it. The idea that like it would be bad enough if it was actually someone you worked for, but you didn't right. even work for him. And you definitely didn't sleep with him. So there was no kernel of truth to any of it. That's just mind boggling. So the way that came to me was, um, I'm in the camp of, I will never out him publicly because that's just, it's not my, it's not my jam. So I'll be careful with how I say mm-hmm. I found out. So I Give found the restaurants out- uh, pseudonyms. So he, <laughs> he, was, he was working at McDonald's and I was at Wendy's. <laughs> so a former employee of his is also a friend of mine. Now that friend went out with one of my dearest friends and was like, hey, maybe you want to tell Kristen, but X, Y, and Z said this about her. And so then of course my friend's like, uh, I'm going to tell her. So that's how I found out. Um, after that, I probably ran into him, I don't know, three or four times at food festivals. And I, I, I wanted to say something so bad. I also have gotten myself into a little bit of trouble when I would speak too soon and I didn't think, think all the way through. And I was like, ultimately, I'm going up and he's staying right here. So he's already, he's already placed himself where he wants to be. And that's fine. Don't I give him that publicity and don't, yeah. Exactly. So that. I refuse to frequent his, I refuse since that day to ever go to any of his restaurants um, and to support him in any kind of way. I can't wait till we're best friends. And then I'm like, oh, let's go here. And then you're like, absolutely not. I'm like, I knew it. Um, it's a long, it's a long play. It's going to take a while, but. Um, Just give me a tequila and we're fine. Perfect, All it takes great. is one drink. Off the yeah. air. And take it yeah. off the air. Let's talk about Top Chef. Um, you won season 10 and it was a very interesting path because you got eliminated during Restaurant Wars and then worked your way back through Last Chance Kitchen. So lucky for you, you were on a season by the point they had gotten to Last Chance Kitchen. Early on when you got bounced, that was it. But then you won all of those challenges to get back in and end up um, winning over Brooke Williamson, who later won in uh, a return visit to the show. Um just in general, we don't have to get into details because I'm sure lots of interviews about the show and it was a little while ago now, but um, what was your biggest lesson or biggest takeaway other than, of course, the incredible spotlight and attention it puts on you? You know, that time, that six weeks of filming, I think was one of the very first times in my life where I had zero time to overthink anything, right? Because you're just thrown into it and your adrenaline's going and you're stressed out of your mind. And you just have to go because if you do, then if you if you're going to stop at any point, you're going to fall behind. And so it was the first time in my life where all I had to do was just rely on my instincts and my skill and just do what came naturally to me. And so the biggest thing after all said and you know after the season was done, whether I had won or not, the biggest thing was, wow, you kind of know what you're doing, mm-hmm. and you being you is good enough. 
And for me, that was something I had struggled immensely prior to all, all that time leading up since I was a child, all the way to being a young adult. And it's still something I manage to this day of being worthy and good enough um, for good things to happen. And so I think that for me was like this huge moment of permission to say, whatever you're doing is working and you overthinking to try to change the trajectory that you're going to go on to make it look better. You don't have to do that. Mm. So just do you. And I think that that was like, I mean, a life changing moment. Yeah. That sounds like a wonderful takeaway yeah. that you can go back to in moments when anxiety is trying to tell you otherwise. Mm -hmm. um, my friend CJ uh, was on. Yeah. We'll remember him as a uh, the giant redhead uh, <laughs> who, no matter how many times you hang out with him, you still have to stop yourself from mentioning it because he's like literally seven feet tall. Yeah. And this is coming from someone whose husband is like six five, but seems like a totally normal person around CJ who looks like <laughs> towers over him. But he talked about just the stress is already there, but then something like he went out on bad broccolini that he didn't want to serve and they told him he had to. And so now whenever I watch the show, because I know that from him, I'm always like, how often is the chef like, nope, I changed my mind or I'm not going to do this. And then they're like, too late. We already told everyone what you're making or too late. We've already like, is, does, is it, does it feel manipulated? Like we all imagine reality TV to be, you know, I had an experience where it felt like none of that happened. It was literally like, you're going to do what you're going to do. They're going to catch it whether you want to or not. Mm -hmm. And you're just going to keep going. I think, I think where some people maybe get caught up a little bit and have that moment of like, oh my God, I feel like I have to do what they're telling me is of course, we're all novices. We're idiots chefs <laughs> that like have never been on TV before. And we're like, we're going to go on national television. And the show is doing their job and saying, trying to guide us, right? And like, give us a lane and go down your lane. Like, let's cook, let's do this, let's do. I think what ends up happening is that you, if, so, if someone who knows more than you says, hey, you know, what do you think of this? Or maybe don't serve that. Ultimately, you can be like, well, I don't really care. Right. And I'm going to serve it. And I'm going to do what I want. Because they also like that too. So yeah. I think it's, I think it's, us going on with a lot of lack of knowledge of how to how to be because I personally went on thinking okay well this is tv I'm going to do what these people tell me and whatever meanwhile they don't want to tell you anything because that's the best tv yeah. so it's well it's, and you were uh, based on my timeline which is that CJ and I became friends on MySpace I believe that you were on several seasons after <laughs> Was he in, in your top eight? Yeah, no, I don't think I ever made the top eight, unfortunately. I, I think the fact that I was using MySpace at the time leads me to believe that it was a bit earlier than when you were sure. victorious. I mean, so. I think he was he was like one of the first like five seasons. Yeah, so I think it does matter. The longer the show's on, the more you've watched how it works, then you can assert yourself within those situations. But um, always fun to hear the stories from the show. And, and like now with the travel and everything else is just is just amazing. New season soon. Are you involved at all? I am. Yes. I'm part of the rotating alumni guest judges. Ooh, so you'll see me. Um, yeah, you'll see me make some appearances and insert some opinions that you may or may not agree with regarding food. <laughs> okay, looking forward to it. We'll get right back to the interview. But first, what is your favorite word? Oh, okay. Um, my favorite word is f I feel like it's the one that really just gets the point across, whether you're happy, sad, angry, doesn't matter. And it's like, it's like, I'm not a big exclamation mark person. I do it for other people, but like, is my exclamation mark. 
Oh, gosh. Okay, this is going to be a slightly longer pod based solely on the fact that me researching the F-bomb, the 50 center, the big one, one of the few words that we have to actually bleep on this pod, uh, the research resulted in so much fun. The etymology of this word is so fun that I'm going to read a little bit to you. Uh, This is what it says on my favorite etymology site. Uh, To have sexual intercourse with, until recently, a difficult word to trace in usage, in part because it was omitted as taboo by the editors of the original Old English Dictionary when the F entries were compiled from 1893 to 97. And wasn't in a single English language dictionary from 1795 to 1965. The Penguin Dictionary broke the taboo in the latter year, and then Houghton Mifflin fouled in 1969 with the American Heritage Dictionary, but also had a clean green edition without the words so that it could still be in public high schools. Um, They attest the written word from at least the 16th century. The Old English Dictionary, second edition, uh, cites the 1500s, 1503, um, in the form F-U-K-K-I-T which is amazing because I thought that came much later, but apparently that might be the root of it all. Uh, The, um, and it, it, some believe it's actually a far more ancient word, but wasn't written in the kind of text that would have survived from old English and middle English. Um, There is a proper name, John Lafucker from 1278, but that surname could have other explanations. It may be wholly unrelated to the word. Uh, There is also a hint in a 15th century poem uh, that's written in bastard Latin and middle English. Um, But all of those things are sort of hard to trace because it wasn't written down. And then it was outlawed in print in England by the Obscene Publications Act of 1857 and then outlawed in print in the U.S. by the Comstock Act in 1873 until finally years and years later, 1933, the Ulysses decision and Lady Chatterley's lover allowed it to break through. And then it comes into all these other manuscripts and other things. Um, In 1943, F it became known as a cuss word in its own right. They actually uh, convinced uh, the publishers of The Naked and the the Dead in 1948, uh, convinced Norman Mailer to use the euphemism FUG, F-U-G. And he was later introduced to the famous Dorothy Parker and she greeted him with, so you're the man who can't spell (laughs) So uh, a lot of people convinced out of using it. um, And some of the uh, resources here on the various versions and where they started are absolutely comical 1916 up is to ruin spoil or destroy from a group of slavic words off 1929 as a command to depart all 1960 and then in 1874 is another version of just straight but it started as a woman considered in sexual terms a um wit was in 1970, uh, slang for fool or an idiot. 1969, cluster f- a bungled or confused undertaking. And in the 1590s, way back then, a f-er, one who copulates. What a fun trip down memory lane this has been for one of the best words in our language. And I thank you, Kristen, for allowing us to learn all those variations and when they came about. Um, still can't say it on this pod, though. Speaking of great words, you're going to learn today. The word of the week is, so this is a decidedly different word. It's a beautiful word, and it's inspired by my guest, a chef. Uh, and it's a term from the cooking world that I've always loved, omakase. And in Japanese, it means respectfully leaving another to decide what is best. Or more simply, just I'll leave it up to you. 
And it usually, in the way we use it here, means that you're putting your dining experience, usually at a sushi restaurant, in the hands of the chef. It's kind of like chef's choice, but um, it really is sitting down and saying, I'll leave it to you. Um, I think it sounds beautiful, omakase. And I think I love the idea in specific. So I trust this chef to delight me. Um, but I also love it in the abstract. I'm okay with letting this expert use their expertise to guide things. It's respecting people who know more than you, who have put in the work, who have dedicated time and care to understanding and knowing something. I feel like our desire to know everything and comment on everything now can be something that's just silly, like people commenting on social media about a show they haven't seen or a book they haven't read, but they still want to be part of the site, guys, so they're going to comment. Or a, a column that they haven't read, they only read the headline, and they still have to get that thought in. That's silly, but usually not that damaging. But it can also be disastrous, right? Not trusting scientists or doctors during a pandemic, not trusting people who have put in the work and the time and instead decide that we know better. So I would love to get back to respecting intelligence and research and hard work and just being okay with not knowing and letting people who know do it. I respectfully leave you to decide what's best. Omakase. Now let's get back to the interview. So you come back from winning Top Chef, and I imagine all of a sudden there's this whole new world to get used to of, of interviews and people being interested and what are you going to do next? And maybe mm -hmm. some famous chefs and people from the food world reaching out. Um, and you decide right around then to come out <laughs> just to like add to the to the mix. What was there a correlation there of like, this is a lot of attention. I don't want to be disingenuous in mm -hmm. my interactions because of that part of my life had everything to do with a relationship that was happening at the time. So um, what? And so the show finished airing in February. The finale aired. Um, 2013 or? 2014. So we did, yeah. So 2014, finale airs. Um, and right around that time, I was starting to date someone. Um, it was like my first like big, big, serious relationship with a woman that wasn't just like, you know, casual. Um, and I was like, oh my God, like I fell in love. The relationship was an adult relationship. It was serious. And that's why I decided to come out because I could no longer hide that part of who I was. So had I not had that relationship, I think it would have taken me a little bit longer, but having her gave me a reason to want to do it. You want to show her off too. Like when you're in love like that, you don't want to hide it in any way. You want to be out in the world and like tell everyone. I mean, oh, we, oh. we hid it for quite some time, mm. like six, seven months. Whoa. Um, like my family and friends knew long before I came out publicly, but right. it was um, like, we couldn't like hold hands walking down the street, mm. you know? And I was like, and I also was still struggling with having the confidence to, to actually physically say the words that I'm gay. Yeah. Like, it had nothing to do with a fa my family and friends not being supportive. It had everything to do with my own um, insecurities. Yeah. The food world seems like a not too bad place for that, though. There's a lot of LGBTQ plus like a representation compared to, say, sports for, for men. Sure. For women, it's much more safe space for that. But, you know, I feel like there are spaces that have. Yes. You know, yes and no, because what ends up happening is already you're in this male dominated industry. And then all of a sudden you're like, I'm gay. And so that means you like women. Mm -hmm. right and then then the guys are like oh then it, then yeah. this like male like the crassness oh, about like let's person. get into details <laughs> what's your it, type <laughs> it comes out and then it yeah. also for some reason I feel that the perception of me that was that I was less than 
even more so than what I already was. Interesting. Uh, it drove I me more into a minority class. That, that's it's so funny because it's it's not a it's not a apples to apples, but I really appreciated being married as my career took off because it was a lot harder for people to pull the BS. They still mm-hmm. did it of who I'm sleeping with and what I must have done in in the sports world. But I feel like almost the same goes for you and that a-hole in Boston. Is like, yeah, I definitely didn't sleep with him. <laughs> you know, well, like there is that idea then, though, of you take away this power dynamic. You don't take it away because some men like have watched the movie Chasing Amy too many times. And they're just <laughs> like, like, I am Ben Affleck, which, by the way, at the time, thought it was a great movie. And now I look back, I'm like, this entire movie was about Ben Affleck trying to make a lesbian straight. Like, this is not good. But anyway... I feel like there's a bunch of dudes that watch that movie too many times. And then, you know, but for the most part, I would imagine it takes away that element of feeling like that's a part of the the work well, relationship. What ended up happening is I also was working with uh, assholes. Oh, okay. I, I thought we were going to get back to you at McDonald's. You were no, right. <laughs> trying to figure out how to. <laughs> Where I, then I was working for a very powerful woman who owns all these restaurants now, me being promoted all of a sudden gave them an excuse to say, well, you only got promoted because you're having a relationship with ah, the owner. Perfect. It's perfect. That, right. Wow. And you me, you and found the one this, uh, situation where it could be used to get right. you. To- and at the same time, when I was coming out, Barbara also kind of had her own coming out, right, uh, where she was dating this woman. So then all of a sudden, it's like, well. She's supporting the other out. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it just, it was, it was. It Always was something. Yeah, it was obnoxious. Um <laughs> But it, I mean, and then I would get like the things on social media say, oh, man, if only you liked men. And yeah. in your head, you're like, I nothing would be different. You anyways. Yeah, yeah. Nothing would be different. <laughs> or you're so you're you're too cute to be a lesbian, like shit mm. like that. Yeah. And I'm like, it, mm. whatever. Yeah, whatever. So you over the course of the next couple of years, you're feeling the the good vibes and all the good stuff from having one top chef and getting all this publicity. You're also dealing with life changes and bullshit from jealous people. Um, and you've talked about how you just weren't that happy. Did it make you re- revisit your goals or what you thought you wanted because of the, the new opportunities you had? I was unhappy before that. Uh, I was unhappy with me had nothing to do with anything else around me. It had everything to do with me and accepting me. So even after coming out where, yes, this weight was lifted off and I was like, wow, this is what happiness feels like. It was still, I was still young and naive to think that or put the pressure on myself to say, you have to have it all figured out. And now that success is happening, it's now, now you have to maintain the success. Now, if you don't, then you're going to fall and become irrelevant and basically die is what's going through my head. and. It it wasn't until I probably three, four years ago, within the last five years, that I've really settled into, I'm happy with who I am. I accept all the things that are weird about me. I accept the thoughts, the negative thoughts that I have, and I just now know how to manage them. So it doesn't mean that all of a sudden I think that everything's great and I'm amazing and everything's perfectly 100% fantastic. It just now means that I now know how to handle the thoughts as they come and go. It's so funny too. Like, I feel like there's this, um, 
understanding and acceptance of self that comes in your 30s that then allows you the time and space to care more about other people Mm. because you're so consumed with who am I and what am I going to be and how am I going to make it and what can I do that matters in the world? And that takes up all your time. And for the people who are younger and are already so empathetic and so able to care about others, that's a tremendous gift. But I find that a lot of my friends, we get to our sort of mid thirties and then you're like, okay, I feel okay about what I got going on. Now I want to look around and make sure everybody else has it good. And, and um, I remember, I think it was like Jennifer Aniston. This was probably 20 years ago now. I read an article with her and I think she was saying something about how, and now I can't keep track of time. It was either 30 or 40. It's so great because you just stop giving a shit about what other people think and own yourself. And I was like 22 and I was like, whatever. She's just, she's just saying that because she's getting old. Right. <laughs> like, you know, because you're, you're 22 yes. and you think 22 yeah. is like peak life. Yeah. And then now that I'm old, I'm like, oh, she was so right. It's so much it, better it when really you just is. don't give a shit. A hundred percent. And I think that I, I've always cared about what people think of me, not because they actually really care what, like, no one cares what I'm doing in the big picture of things. It's that I've always put so much judgment on myself, me judging me, that I just assume that everyone else is judging me the same way, which in reality. Well, that's- and I think that's part of like, um, I don't want to say achievement culture, because I we like to t- make everything a, a culture. But <laughs> as as overachievers, which you and I both are like that expectation, like you said, of like, well, now that I've made it now, I have to keep making it now I have to do right. more. I'm like that with my contracts, I sign a contract. And then I always say, well, once I get to that contract, I can relax a little and then I get I'm like, now I have to prove that I earned it. And Correct. then it's like a never ending, you just never get to jump off and relax. Yep. Um, Okay, so you release a cookbook in 2017. You host a travel channel show. You're starting to branch out and try to figure out ways that you could be in the food world and find happiness that isn't the standard that you had thought was the only path. And then you end up opening Arlo Gray, your own restaurant in Austin in 2018, which is something that at one point you had said, I think I don't want that anymore. Right. And here we are. So what what happened? <laughs> <laughs> so I think so. I left, I left the traditional restaurant sense right at, like shortly after Top Chef because of the environment. I didn't want to be in it. But I also was like, wow, all these new things are happening to me that I never once in my life ever thought I was ever going to do. I never thought I was going to be able to travel the world. I never thought I was going to be able to cook and meet so many people. I never thought I was going to meet my chef idols. Like, And now I'm part of this circle. And I'm like, oh my God, what's happening? Mm-hmm. And so I'm like so excited. Kid in the candy store just grabbing at everything. And then, you know, yes, I did that for a long time. And I always said, why would I ever put myself into a restaurant space and deal with the BS that comes along with it when my life is so good? I think what ended up happening is that I just burnt myself out and I was starting to feel, I was starting to feel like there was, there weren't good avenues where people could come to have my food. And how else am I going to be a chef? other to cook that I have to cook for people. Right. And so like that story started playing. And then it also was like, I'm going to keep saying no to all these restaurant opportunities until I have a, like a little hint and itch to say yes. And I'm going to keep saying yes until I want to say no. Mm-hmm. And so that's what I did. And all of a sudden it was just, it felt good. So I just kept going and going and going. And I think, yes, I love the restaurant. I love everyone that's part of it. Like I'm so, so proud of it. Um, but I did find my future wife during that process. So I feel like it was all meant to happen. Yeah. 
It's all it's all kind of part and parcel. It comes together. Um, so let's talk before we get to the pandemic and, and it changes everything and the engagement, which is very exciting. Um, I, I was listening to an interview and you talked about how you've got these Florida ceiling windows in Austin where you can see the Bat Bridge. I have never been to Austin. I am dying to go to Austin. I keep saying I'm going to go to Austin and things get in the way, but I've heard about the Bat Bridge a million times. So that's very cool. And that's very Austin. But you also talked about how, you know, it, it, it it's in its place in Austin, but the roots of the food come from wherever you've been. So um, Michigan and your French uh, roots in, in cooking, your love of pasta. And interestingly, I would imagine, and you joke about this on your show, Fast Foodies, like the other guys are always cooking Asian and you're never cooking. So I imagine a lot of people just see you and think, oh, I'm going to go to this Asian restaurant. And then they show up and they're like, what's happening? But you said <laughs> finding this restaurant and making this space helped you find your own food identity and and not worry about so much whether it fits anything. It just fits you. Right. That's such a cool kind of discovery. And then just acceptance, because I don't think people go to restaurant. Well, maybe you do. If you really want Italian, you might. Or if you really want Chinese. But other than that, people just go to be to be surprised. Right. You know, I, you go from cooking other people's food the majority of your career until you're ready to open yours up. And so what ends up happening is that you you slide into the same style that you've been taught for years and years and years. Or in my instance, I went in and I created my opening menu. And I it was definitely more in my head than it was in my heart. And so I put it on paper. I could execute it perfectly. Everything was great. It was gorgeous food. Um, but what I, what was lacking was I no longer had a story to go along with the food. And for me... I love going to dinner, having a story being told through the food. Um, and so I was like, oh, God, well, we're busy. Things aren't broken. Things are going well. But like, I don't feel good anymore. And it's the same feeling that I had when I was working at the restaurant five years before that. I was like, I'm cooking with my head. I'm no longer, I have no soul in this food. And like, that wasn't okay with me. And so I was like, re overhauled the whole menu slowly. Um, and if I didn't have the story or the point of origin for a specific dish, it did not belong on the menu. I love when in the, it's been in the last maybe five or six seasons that Top Chef has started introducing the idea of a lot of the big challenges near the end being about something that connects mm -hmm. you to home or something that, you know, is, is really rooted in the story because that does bring out these emotional experiences for people and they put that in their food. Um, you talked on the interview I listened to about changing the menu often because you get bored. This is what I always ask anybody who's a chef or owns a restaurant. All my friends, I'm like, don't you get bored cooking the same thing every night? Like, how is that still exciting? And then, but what if somebody really loves something and that's why they keep coming back and then you change it? Because I also hate when I go to my favorite spot and I'm like, what? You don't have the eggplant? What? How is that possible? So how do you decide when to keep and move on and, and adjust to your own boredom versus what the what the guests might want? So I always put the rule in that once I change a dish, it's got to stay on for a minimum of three months in order for people to, to have it. It's also a three-month period where I can learn if it's going to do well or not. So every night you pull the P-mix, right? And you see your top sellers, you sold 27 of this and six of this. And a lot of times I drive my decisions based off of that. It's like, okay, well, you know, you have to figure out which ones are doing well. You keep your best sellers on and then you kind of maneuver everything else around. The seasons have to play a mm -hmm. part of it because you can no longer get product anymore. Um, and so, you know, I think for me, 
the way I combat having to cook the same thing over and over again, and it's the same way I would tell my team when I had a larger team than now, but it was, you have to imagine and picture someone very important in your life. A lot of times it was like their mothers, right? Sitting in the dining room, having never been here before, having this for the very first time. Mm -hmm. And I promise you, you will cook it differently. Yeah. The, 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 the like muscle memory of it wears off and you're like, all you have to do is see a face in the dining room mm-hmm. and it can, it literally, quite literally can bring me to tears. Seeing a face in the dining room, having an experience. And all I can imagine is like my parents going to a restaurant and I'd be like pissed off and I would come after the chef or the restaurant who did not give them the greatest experience yeah. that they deserve. And that's how you that's how you cook differently when you put faces to table numbers and seat numbers. It's so funny. That made me think of athletes who talk about why they're willing to either stay and give autographs or take pictures or sometimes even why they can night in and night out, give their best performance. They often talk about Jeremy Roenick is one Michael Jordan that like, this might be the only time someone ever sees me play. Mm -hmm. And so it needs to be my best. And all you have to see is like, we're coming here on our anniversary Mm -hmm. or, um, you know, we're bringing my mom for her 85th birthday or like, it's just, you just have to add personality to it and heart to it. So let's talk pandemic quickly because we're running out of time here, but you've got, it, it opened in 2018. So now you're cruising and you've got this beautiful space. That's like all the touches you talked about the, you know, the restaurant bathroom has a nod to your childhood and the, the art around is from your own personal drawings and all these things are, are you. So you've created this space, pandemic hits and you have to shut down at least for a while until you introduce these amazing yurts that I keep seeing on Instagram. And I want to go to the yurt. Um, how do you balance being the kind of leader that you that you talk about, where you want to be empathetic, you want to understand and talk through mental health challenges instead of being like chefs that came before that were tyrannical and didn't care about the the, the experiences of their employees? You have this diverse staff and crew, but you're also the boss, right? Like you're in charge of whether this place survives, has any money. So as much as people looked at bosses during the pandemic and gave them all the middle finger and said, you know, how could you not think of us? They're also like, well, we don't even have somewhere for you to work if I give too much and don't. How do you balance all that? You know, I think I'm very, very fortunate in the fact that the team that I had as we went into this pandemic are some of the most genuinely kind, understanding, realistic group of people. Um, So it was it was like, we're all in this. It has to happen. We have no choice. We have to shut down. And it sucks. Like we all can, we all can sit in the same company of being like, well, this sucks. Um, you know, I was in New York, the restaurants in Austin can't fly there. And so I was, we were FaceTiming and zooming and just texting and checking in with them. And so my job as their chef leader became a friend, you know, and that's all I could do. And, um, I, I, I told them I was always going to be there for them, regardless of if the restaurant is open, regardless if I was their chef or not, um, that they have my number, they have my contacts, all they have to do is reach out to me. And some of them were like, chef, I don't want to reach out to you, I want you to reach out to me. And I was like, done, great, we have this dialogue, you tell me what you need, I tell you what I need. And let's do it, you know, and I and for me, that was 
I needed that. I needed to have a sense of family because when I told them that we had to shut down the restaurant, I literally got off the phone and I just bawled, absolutely bawled, not because of a loss of the restaurant, but it was a loss of family. Um, And I could just like, you know, I love spending time with them. I really do. Yeah. So you reopened in the fall with the yurts? October. So, well, we reopened in October uh, indoor, dinner only. And then we introduced brunch on the weekends. Um, Numbers started going up. So we shut down indoor dining. We shut down brunch. And then American Express and Resi were like, hey, you want to be part of this program? And we're like, yes. I mean, it saved saved us in more ways than none. So we have the yurts. We still have the yurts. We've had to do some maneuvering because as, you know, Austin, well, Austin's hot. It's in Texas, right? So <laughs> like, as you know, just kidding, you've still never just been. You haven't been. <laughs> but if you look at the weather, it's like <laughs> 75 degrees and it's beautiful. And so we're in the hotel, the main restaurant in the hotel and the pool deck, which is a common space for the hotel. So our yurts were fine out there during the winter. And now we had to just remove one. We went from eight to seven, pushed all the yurts kind of to one side of the pool deck, allowing space for guests to enjoy the pool during the day. And then we open up at night. Cool. I mean, there's been a lot of creativity at play and it's been really necessary uh, Mm -hmm. in order for for things to survive. Okay. So just before the pandemic, in September of 2019, you got engaged to Bianca, who is the VP of Food and Beverage for Standard Hotel. So you get engaged. You're both in great places, I would presume, because that sounds like a big time job. I used to love going to the Standard when I lived in LA. It's It's like very cool and hot. Yeah. So now you have to deal with the closed restaurant and she has to deal with presumably all of the restaurants and bars and spaces in all of the hotels that she helps run shutting down. Right. And you're engaged. So you're in this wonderful, magical, which probably helped, honestly, that like floating feeling that you get for a couple of months at least. Uh, how did that affect you guys? You know, well, so we were engaged September before the whole pandemic thing. And for us, we were... It didn't really change anything, to be honest. Like, we are who we are. We continued working from home. We're still busting our asses. Um, her and I, and I, we always kind of, like, I explained to her that I am like a puppy, like a golden retriever around her. Like, she leaves for five seconds, and the second <laughs> she comes home, I'm like, oh, you're home again. Like, I'm just so excited. So, like, we have that relationship, whether I'm confident that it's going to remain that way until we're, you know hitting our Uh 50th wedding anniversary to, you know, whatever. Um, So it, it just kind of kept going. It is what it is. We were, you know, doing what we got to do to keep the restaurants and our people um, healthy, healthy and happy. Um, You know, meanwhile, we're spending so much more time together than we ever have, which for us, that was, that was really good. I know some relationships probably (laughs) got a little tested, Um, but for us, because we've never spent that much time together, we haven't had the opportunity. She would always travel. I would always travel. So it was like, wow, we get to spend time at home together. That's That's nice. Pretty cool. Yeah. Um, So I'm obsessed with fast foodies and I'm not even someone who smokes a lot of weed. And I feel like that's the target (laughs) audience um, just based on the food you're cooking and the graphics and the weirdness of it all. Uh, But I still love it so much. Um, Tell people about this show because I think it's what four episodes in have aired now. So yeah, uh, yeah, it's like halfway through the season. So we shot it in the summer of the pandemic. Now, the whole I couldn't thing tell, was, which is impressive. Then, yeah, yeah. I mean, we, I, we, it was August, I think, in LA, 
Um, but anyway, so, you know, the show happened and how it was presented to me was like, Hey, like, do you want to break the mold of like you being the serious like chef and like whatever? And I said, well, yeah, like I have a personality. I like, I like to have fun. Um, and so they're like, well, fast food, you're going to try to recreate fast food. And then you're going to try to like make it into something else. And I was like, okay, whatever. Um, so we were shooting the show and everything about it just felt like there were no cameras involved. Like it was just it, literally what you see, 10 hours of filming, which is shaved down to 28 minutes of television or whatever it is. And basically what you see is what happened for all the hours that you didn't see. <laughs> and it's just, it's, it's a fun time. We got to cook and we got to do whatever we wanted. And it was just the most freeing kind of cooking I've ever done, I think, in my entire life. Where yes, I'm there to impress somebody, but not really. Like I have more pressure cooking for like a group of friends coming over than I did on this show. Yeah. So um, it's you and um, Justin Sutherland, and um, I'm blanking on, on Jeremy. 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 Yeah. Um, and a celebrity guest comes in and they present to you uh, something that they love. You know, an In-N-Out burger or you know a, a, a Taco Bell crunchy gordita something i think yep. um and you have to try to recreate it to taste exactly like that and then you get to spin it into something different and the celebrities get to present challenges and you can have you know giant spatula hands to slow you down if you lose the first challenge and um i was disappointed that the first episode when people got hot dogs shot at their face was the only that was my favorite of the of the loser punishments more so than watching you eat bad things just because the visual of people putting yes. shields on and then having wieners chucked at their face was, <laughs> was entertaining um but anyway if you guys haven't seen it it's on true tv it's called fast foodies it's really fun and if you are someone who smokes a lot of weed you will really enjoy it because yes. mm -hmm. it's got I all your favorite munchies and <laughs> my uh 75 year old parents love the show and they definitely don't smoke <laughs> yeah. weed. No, I love it <laughs> and I, everyone. I've never been high watching it, but I imagine the, the random parts were like, today's challenge brought to you by cabbage yeah. for no reason. It's just a picture of cabbage. Like that's the kind of thing people get into. Um, it's And you guys have great chemistry. It's just a really, it's a really fun show. And to hear some of the secrets about the things that you're eating at these places. Also to hear Jeremy incorrectly say Portillo's 35 times. I was like, dude, I know you're not from <laughs> <laughs> the Midwest at all, like at all. Like, yeah. Come on, man. Yeah. Or many states and Arizona, which is the Chicago of the West, are all just giving you this like tisk tisk right now as you continue to he, not he say Portillo's. It. You can't do it anymore. <laughs> no. I will. Portillo's was like I used to be a hostess at the Chicago Chop House. Yeah. Uh, and Portillo's was the next yep. block over, so it was like I was like, this is amazing. I haven't had one in forever. Feels like home. Yeah. Um. All right, we're running out of time here, and you do have to do the one thing that everybody does and nobody expects. Didn't expect a kind of Spanish Inquisition. <laughs> nobody expects the Spanish Inquisition. It's the Spanish Inquisition speed round. Number one, your current career is canceled. Food does not exist. What job do you do instead? Woodworker. Wow. Do you know Elena Deladon, the WNBA player? No. Okay, you should follow her on Insta because in her free time when she's not one of the greatest women's basketball players of all time, she is a woodworker. No way. Yeah. Okay. And a lesbian, so. I mean, all come hang on. Out, right? Yeah. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, you should follow her. Her stuff's really interesting. She makes like, um, you know, tables and stuff, but she also makes like basketball backboards 
and stuff okay. like that, like stuff that her fans would want from her. Um, number two, what's the most scared you've ever been? Uh, coming out. Yeah, that checks out. Uh, number three, you can be best in the world at anything for one day. What is it? Oh, curling. <laughs> what? I love curling. I'm obsessed. <laughs> Have you tried it? No. I'm like waiting for my chance to like go to Canada and put on like the red jacket. Yeah. Like, that you know? should be cooking. Like you need to find a way to spin that into some sort of cooking oh, show where it you're so good. Um, we, in Chicago during the winter, a bunch of bars have curling. Now it's not legit. There's you don't sweep, but yeah. other than that, you do at least have like legit curling stones and you get to practice and it's really fun. Okay. But, but I want to, I, I want to do the whole shebang. Uh, number four, what current celebrity in music or politics or TV or whatever would you most like to be your best friend? Kamala Harris. Ooh, Madam, Vice Madam Vice President. MVP. Uh, number five, what's your biggest, most meaningless pet peeve? Oh, people shuffling their feet. Oh, it drives me crazy. You know what it sounds like? Lazy. Yeah, people like who just don't walk foot. fast in general. I don't care if I don't care if they're picking up their feet, but they're moving them slowly. Get the f- out of my way. I I don't have time to spend getting from here to there unless the importance of what I'm doing is the journey from here to there. And then okay, maybe, but I'll still probably be walking twice as fast as everyone. It's the it's the aggravating like my blood boils inside, yeah. and I have to change my route. <laughs> um, number six. What's the most embarrassed you've ever been? I don't I don't get embarrassed easily. It's because I have social anxiety that I'm so anxious in my own space that I can't even recognize what the hell is going on around me. <laughs> I'm like passing out and blacking out in my head that like anything and could no happen even, and I wouldn't yeah. even know. No one yeah. even knows you're there and right. you're you're imagining that the entire room is staring at you. Right. That counts, I think. So just your life. Your life yeah, is your 100%. most embarrassing moment. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, existing. Um, <laughs> uh, number seven, what's the thing about yourself you'd most like to improve? My patience. Hmm. big time i don't have that problem (laughs) (laughs) i work on it with my fiance all the time (laughs) i want to run over people who walk slow because i'm extremely patient (laughs) (laughs) Uh, number eight any band alive or dead can play your next party who is it hansen what (laughs) do they have a deep catalog well, mm, they should have I mean, played I mean, the same song over and over. It's so good. And I also, it was um, my best friend and I were texting about Taylor Hansen's birthday two days ago. And so perhaps that's why it's fresh in my head. But also, why were we texting about Taylor Hansen's birthday? I don't know. But I feel like um, who doesn't love a good Mbop? Okay. I didn't know one was named Taylor. I knew oh, their yeah. name was Hansen. I don't know any of the, you know. Taylor, specific- Isaac, and Zachary. <laughs> <laughs> Taylor, Taylor is the dreamboat. So like, okay. Obviously. All right. Good to know. Yeah. I know Isaac's the one with the longer face. <laughs> I just remember that. About you him. said it. <laughs> no judgment. It's just, just a descriptor of what his face shape is. I have a long face. Mine's kind of shaped like a peanut. No judgment. Um, number nine. What would you consider your biggest failure? Oh, that also is part of the embarrassment. So life probably. <laughs> Um, not being able to ride the subway without breaking it out into a sweat and wanting to pass out. Um, <laughs> disappointing my family. Yeah. Um, yeah. Hmm. Showing up to work kind of messed up in college, you know, like all of the above. Yeah. Yeah. Um, d- 
does your social anxiety affect you if you're at the restaurant and you like want to go out in the dining room and talk to people? No, because I'm in control. It is my space. This is my, it's, I, it's 100% where I don't feel like I have a purpose. So riding the subway, I have zero purpose for anybody else. You're... No one gives a flying <laughs> if I get anywhere. <laughs> so I, my purpose in the dining room, or I could do a demo in front of millions of people. I'm fine because I feel the most confident when I feel like I have something to give to somebody else. Interesting. That's fascinating. Yeah. Um, number 10, what three individual words would you most hope that people would use to describe you? Oh, kind, um, smart, hardworking. Yeah. I'll take it. I like okay. this. That sounds like a good person. Uh, and finally, who should I have on this podcast? Who's someone interesting from any business, industry, anything? Kamala Harris. Okay, well, yeah. I mean, I don't think she has anything else to do. People are always coming on here and telling me Kamala Harris and Michelle Obama and Oprah. Oh, wait. And I'm like, hey, do you know, do you know, in the ESPN world, like, um, Kate F Fagan? Fagan. Yeah, she's been on before, and actually, her wife Catherine, Catherine. is coming on next week. Okay, Catherine yep. is what I was gonna say because funny story how I know them, um, and I adore, I adore them. Yes, both. they're the best. Um, so I was doing my book tour dinner in Charleston, and Catherine was living somewhere further outside of the city or at that point. So she drove in by herself, sat at the bar, had this five course lunch or whatever it is, whether I was cooking and we were chatting and then when she left I was like god I she had good energy I like it and then all of a sudden we became Instagram friends over the pandemic I taught her on FaceTime how to make a French omelet we shoot the shit um I just I think she's yeah I listened to you on the podcast talking about the omelet ah she's yeah. awesome yeah they're I've both never, amazing yeah. I've never You've met, never met in person, person. okay Kate yeah. Clathern I have yeah yeah um well You've just perfectly segued a great tease into next week's episode with Catherine. People will be fired up for that. Uh, thank you so much for coming on. This was so much fun. I really love talking to you. And when I get to Austin, um, of course, I got to go to ABBA, which is CJ's uh, <laughs> Chicago restaurant that he now opened in Austin outpost of support the cause. And I got to go. I got to go check out Arlo Gray. Yes, please. We would love to have you. You can have a year all by yourself if you want. <laughs> yes. Maybe my <laughs> husband can come, but I'll make him fake an accent. <laughs> that's what she said so you heard it there Kristen and I talk about how much we love um, Catherine Budig who will be the guest next week uh, but as I've done all month I actually have been asking people adjacent to the guest of the week to give some thoughts on how they've been inspired or mentored or just admired the person and so I thought Catherine Budig who is not only a yoga queen but also a cookbook author and someone um, who knows Kristen to offer some thoughts the thing about Kristen, anyone who's listening to this right now can probably relate to some celebrity that you watch from afar that you know, if you met them in person, that you would instantaneously become best friends. And that was my feeling about Kristen from afar. From the minute I saw her on the cover of Cherry Bomb magazine with her just vivacious smile and her sleeve of enthralling tattoos that I want to know the story behind every single one. She's just so magnetic. And 
she came to Charleston where I live and I stalked her. I found where she was cooking and I went and I made sure that she spent plenty of time talking to me. And uh, she came back to Charleston again for the wine and food festival where we spoke again, eventually swapped numbers exactly as how I had planned it. And eventually a, a budding relationship ensued. And there's just something about her, those people that have that, you know, je ne sais quoi, where they are like total beasts, like total champions at what they do. And you can tell that they pour their soul into their craft. And yet there is a humility and personability about them that is so damn alluring. And that is exactly how I would describe Kristen. She is exactly who you want her to be. When you watch her on her TV show, where you read her recipes, where you experience her cooking, she is so down to earth and she's so personable and she's so impassioned. And I truly feel blessed to call her my friend, um, to, to be part of the queer community with her, um, to putting such a, a beautiful name into that community. And let me just say, this woman can make a damn good French omelet. And the highlight of 2020 was FaceTiming Kristen Kish and having her teach me how to make a French omelet. So y'all, enjoy. And if you're jealous of me, that's right. Everybody wants to be best friends with Kristen Kish. Oh yeah, one more thing. Okay, so this part of the podcast is where I rant about something or I share a great story I think you should read or something you should listen to. This was just a fun one, especially during Women's History Month. I, I happened upon this thread. Someone shared it to me on, on social media. And um, man, this female executive director of a tech company or tech-related company uh, tweeted, presumably with tongue firmly planted in cheek, quote, I need a man for a panel. Does anyone know any men? And the responses are fantastic. Uh, a little bit depressing because of their satirical accuracy, uh, but hilarious. Uh, here's a couple of them uh, in response to, I, I, I need a man for a panel. Does anyone know any men? Kat Cosgrove, my brother is a man. Also, I have a dad. If you don't want the uncertainty of having a man on the panel, I'm confident I could speak to the male experience simply by virtue of having male family members. Someone else wrote, not sure whether you really want this. Last week, I greeted my team with hi, ladies, and George began to piss off and say he didn't feel addressed by this. He began a whole discussion, and the meeting became very unproductive. I mean, ladies is suitable for everybody anyway, right? It shouldn't be so hard for George to accept that hi, ladies is so common. Why should I change my language only because he's so sensitive? So the whole discussion was very constructive, and situations like these show exactly why men are so unproductive. At Millennial Prof, it's really insulting to men to put one on the panel just because he's a man. You should look for the best person and put her on the panel. At M. Dezeal, here's a list of women who work on something tangentially related to this topic, even though you specified you wanted men. They're all too good because they're too real, which is both depressing and funny. Sometimes you have to laugh. Uh, you can find the full thread on Twitter under at Laura underscore Bueller, 
B U H L E R, and it was on uh, it was on March twelfth. If you want to read more of those responses, uh, felt apropos right now during Women's History Month. Uh, don't forget, you can always tweet me at Sarah Spain if you've got suggestions for guests or questions or dilemmas or otherwise. And you can always and should always go to the iTunes or podcast app, subscribe to That's What She Said with Sarah Spain, rate five stars please, and give a review. Thanks as always for lasting about an hour with me. That's what she said.